how do you know in the modern world whether your identity is stable and secure? Mm. And the lie that limitless options make us more free, I think, is the lie that we need to undo. And part of the way that we do that is by recapturing the good of constraint. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Welcome to Post Everything. This is John Homus. And last week, my co-host Brad Edwards and I kicked off season three, where we're exploring flourishing and formation. And this particular episode is our first interview of season three. And we're going to be interviewing Bob Thune, who is the founding and lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, we wanted to talk to Bob because he's a particularly thoughtful pastor regarding cultural trends and the implications of those trends for the church. We want to have him on for a level-setting conversation regarding the erosion of significant norms and social consensus. Because what we believe is that the erosion of these things is contributing to a very real confusion and disorientation regarding identity. So we want to talk to Bob about identity and to help us connect the dots to things we're seeing on the level we're most familiar with as pastors, which is the local church. So let's get into the conversation now as we talk with Bob about cultural trends, identity, and the local church. We are here with Bob Thune. Bob, welcome. We're glad you're here on the show with us. Hey, thanks a lot. It's great to be with you. We've heard you give some great talks in the last year or so around how things are rapidly changing in our culture and how that maybe gives some feeling of instability about the future of the church. And a subtext for a lot of what you talk about seems to revolve around identity, how we view ourselves, how we derive our own sense of dignity, value, and worth. And I'm just curious, as a pastor, how have you seen the way that we, we as a culture, engage with identity? How have you seen that change over the last several years? And have you seen any similarities or differences between the way Christians are engaging with that and people who aren't Christians or of other faiths? Well, you're asking a great question. And I guess what feels different to me over the past four or five years is that it's just further advanced in a trajectory that I would say we've been on for maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years. So, you know, Mm. years ago, decades ago, Sociologists began talking about the idea of expressive individualism. I think it was Robert Bella in the 1980s who first kind of brought that term into the public consciousness and, you know, as a way of describing what's unique about sort of late modern Western culture that we're very individualistic and it's the way we express ourselves that sort of shapes our identity. We want to be seen in a certain way. And I would just say that in the last few years, it feels to me as a pastor like that has kind of gone off the rails in the sense that social media has mm-hmm. so heightened the ways that all of us are seeking to present ourselves and express ourselves and find identity through how other people respond to us, mm-hmm. that that seems to be shaping a lot of our understanding of identity. And then, of course, you have the whole transgender movement, which has put a real fine point on the, the idea that I can just sort of decide who I want to be, even, you know, unrelated to my embodiment or sort of my family and those kinds of things. And so it feels like the moment we're living in as a culture is, you know, sort of like a last gasp of expressive individualism. That's very, very (laughs) pronounced. And it feels to me like it's affecting people in our church, people outside of our church. It's, it's the water that we all swim in, as you're saying. Hmm. How have you seen that play out in other ways? You mentioned that social media is kind of a, an incubator for that. It's also a catalyst for that. Then you also mentioned the transgender movement. Uh, What are some other examples of how that might be playing out in our culture, that last gasp of individualism? You see it, I think, politically in how people position themselves. You see it in how isolated we are from one another and how 
you know, when I was growing up, there was still room in our culture to disagree with people and sit down across the table from them and have mm. a friendly disagreement. It feels like there's a lot more sort of backing into corners and yelling at each other across social media channels and those kinds of things. I think mm. you see it in this sort of like crazy level of meritocracy that we live in where everybody sort of has to justify mm. their existence by producing, whether they're in business or whether they're an artist or whether they're a, a content creator, you know. I have a son who's a media personality and does sports journalism. And, you know, all he does is every day is create content. It's like that, you know, it's justification through, you know, creating content and churning out things. And so I think all of those dynamics in our culture play into the fact that we less than ever have a secure sense of identity and a sense of Mm. groundedness Mm. and more and more are grasping for identity through what we do, what we achieve, what we accomplish, how we promote ourselves, what what we put forward in our sort of online personas. I guess all of that seems related to me. Yeah, man. I especially don't want to think about that as a pastor, content creator, not even talking about podcasting, but just like <laughs> preaching. There's already a, kind of a nascent pressure that like Sunday comes every week. And that can be a really hard temptation to resist of like, if I'm not preaching, like who even am I in ways that, gosh, I don't even want to think about how that might affect people downstream. (laughs) It's interesting. You mentioned your son. I come on maybe the tail end of Gen X. Brad is like the beginning of Gen Y millennials. Not sure where you fall, but you know, as we kind of look downstream, we look at younger generations, maybe thirties and younger. It does seem like they're wrestling with identity in different ways. Like maybe it's more important to them or it's, it's different in how it's important to them than it would be to maybe previous generations. And it appears, at least my perception is that maybe younger generations, they're more sensitive to the idea of identity. They're blown back and forth by that. You know, even in some ways where you see some people who are maybe in the Gen Z sort of rejecting the way millennials handled technology, things like that, or buying into technology even more. I'm curious, what do you make of 30s and younger and how they're wrestling with identity? Yeah, John, I guess I would push back on the idea that it's more important to them. I don't know that it's more important because I think it was important to me when I was 18 also. You know, everybody at that stage of life is trying to figure out who am Hmm. I and who am I not. And most of the questions we're asking in adolescence have to do with identity. Hmm. Yeah, that's fair. But I would say it's more fragile than it ever has been. Meaning, you know, I am Gen X to answer your question, John, and I have four children who are all Gen Z. And so they're all living right in the middle of this. And what I notice for their generation is there's so much more anxiety connected to questions of identity. And I think the reason I'm still sort of sorting this out myself, but I think part of the reason is how do you know in the modern world whether your identity is stable and secure. Mm. You know, Mm. like when I was in high school, you're going to make an identity for yourself by being good at sports or being good in school or having a band or, you know, there's like things you could actually try to do that either succeeded or failed. (laughs) But for my kids, when it's like the feedback is a lot through social media and through relationships with peers who are very online and all have the same kinds of anxiety about how am I being perceived? How am I being received? How do I know if I matter and if I value? It just feels to me like those questions are less answered today than they might have been a decade or two ago. And I think the gospel answers them deeply and well. So for Christians, the good news is, you know, we still have the same gospel to preach. But I think culturally, it just feels like there's so much less security in how do I know whether I have established an identity that's still going to be there tomorrow or next week or next year. Yeah. I mean, to tie a couple of these things together, gosh, you know, I was not in marching band. I was in jazz band and hung out with a marching band. So I was super cool. But uh, so many of those things are a very healthy differentiation, right? We figure out in some ways who we are by who we're not. And by kind of juxtaposing and contrasting like our sense of self with other people's sense of self. And I am so thankful that in a high school with a graduating class of about 400, I think, there were a finite number of options there, right? When you grow up on social media or even becoming exposed to it in high school or what have you, everybody is different. What is the niche left for you to be able to 
find out and figure out who you are, if you're different from all of these other people, I can see that being so overwhelming and anxiety inducing because it's like this weird, impossible competition that you can't ever win. You just... Yeah, here's another angle to that. Add on top of that then, Brad, sort of you're talking about the existential realities for any yeah, sort yeah. of adolescent or young person. Add on that the cultural realities of we live in a way more fragile nation than we oh, did yeah. 10 or 20 years ago. And sort of the things we hold in common are less secure. <laughs> you know, like if you ask, like, what do we all sort of like count on together? What 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 shared identity do we have? That sense of shared identity has unraveled in many ways. And so it just feels like not only do I existentially not know who I am, but I don't even know like what it means to be part of a nation or a people. And I think this is a great opportunity for the church, but I do think it's really complicated. Yeah. Where is pastors? So the three of us are pastors and we try and speak to pastors on this podcast, but also speak broadly to anyone that's leading and the challenges they have in, in terms of leading people. But what are maybe pastors, what have we unintentionally assumed about identity, individualism, autonomy that's making ministry harder now because of our assumptions? For instance, Brad has called radical individualism a delayed defeater belief. And I find that phraseology really helpful. But just as an example like that, what are you finding that we as pastors maybe have been naive about when it comes to things like individualism and identity? I think, yeah, the three things that come to mind for me, and I don't know that I speak for every pastor, but I think individualism for sure. I think I thought I was preaching very gospel-centered messages for a long time, but I was preaching them primarily to individuals. And so it was about how the That's gospel interesting. shapes you yeah. and changes you, which is good, but it's only part of the story. Hmm. Right, right. So I think I just took for granted that like, well, we're all individuals and we need to apply the gospel to ourselves. I probably misunderstood or poorly understood what does it mean to be part of a community shaped by the gospel and to derive identity from being part of the people of God, not just a person in Christ. So individualism is certainly one. I think autonomy, I just use the language of autonomy, just the idea that I belong to myself, to use the language of Alan Noble, you know, Hmm. that I am my own and whatever decisions I make. I'm free to make. And so I probably took for granted or failed to see how autonomy really deforms our understanding of the gospel in certain ways. It makes it really hard for people to live in community because you can talk about community all day, but through the lens of autonomy, community just means people who affirm the decisions that I make, (laughs) you know? So it's not a real (laughs) thick community. It's more of a self-referential kind of community. So individualism, autonomy, and then I've used the language of liberalism, which I don't mean conservative versus liberal. I just mean the idea of like democratic values, all the things we take for granted in Western societies about sort of like human rights and, you know, living in a democracy and those kinds of things. I think baked into that view of politics are also a number of worldview assumptions about what is real, what is true, what matters, and I think as liberalism is being exposed in certain ways, I think it also exposes ways that I, as a pastor, have sort of just assumed that cultural context and maybe not critiqued enough with the gospel, some of Mm -hmm. the values that lie underneath that. I want to focus on that last point in particular here for a second, because it was Michelle Margolis's From Politics to the Pews that I read and had my mind blown because she has so much data to back this up. But she said, I think it was either 2010 or 2012. She said, as a country, we reached a tipping point where before that point, the typical and would have been more likely to change their political views based on their religious beliefs. And in 2010 or 2012, that flipped. And so now we are more likely to change our religious views based on our political beliefs. And that Mm -hmm. seems like a really significant tipping point. And you wrote a fantastic article at Mirror Orthodoxy titled David Brooks and the Limits of Liberalism, and where you took the issue with how David Brooks is distinguishing between kind of an extreme autonomy-based liberalism that views the self as at least functionally some kind of like a personal property that we have rights to, and therefore we can do whatever we want, versus a kind of historic or original gift-based liberalism that views the self as, and to use Brooks's language, the receiver of gifts, 
with an implied responsibility to steward those gifts well. Now, I think this is what you're getting at when you just said, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I love that in that article, and right now you're naming something that I think is critically neglected in conversations like these, but it is there and it is at least implicit and important. And that is that society itself, like how we organize our civic life actually shapes and forms our sense of self and our identity through plausibility structures. And they're almost like a civic liturgy that shapes us as we conform to them and those rhythms. Can you talk about like, okay, why is that important to realize, especially for the Christian? Yes. The fight I was trying to pick, if you want to think of it that way with David Brooks, <laughs> is that David Brooks is a really thoughtful human being, but he was trying to ground this idea of gifts-based liberalism in sort of like the baseline liberal philosophy that exists. And I'm just not convinced you can do that. I think the problem with liberalism is unless it's resting on a Christian foundation, which it was sort of for a long time in Western culture, but unless it's resting on sort of Christian assumptions, what liberalism was and is, is sort of a way of articulating the rights of the individual. Hmm. The idea that each of us has individual freedom and shouldn't be constrained or compelled by the state to do things that violate our individual freedom and conscience. The problem is if all you have is a nation full of individuals fighting for their individual rights and freedoms, you no longer have a common good. You don't have anything to hold people together. And I think that's the place where in sort of Western democracies is we've done a great job fighting for rights and freedoms, but untethered from any sense of the common good or any sense of shared values or shared convictions you end up with a nation of individuals who, to use the language of C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, you know, he pictures hell as a place where people just live really, really far away uh, from each other. It's like yes. you've distanced yourselves so far from everybody else that you're just sort of isolated by yourself. And I think that's where we are in mm. American society. And that's part of the reason why identity is so fraught and so fragile is because the way we define who we are is by defining ourselves in distinction from everybody else, which inherently, mm. the more you do that, the less community you have. Man, that is, uh, I couldn't have asked you to say that differently or better myself, uh, <laughs> because I think that the language that I've been using to try and describe this has been this contrast and the historic, at least, relationship between rights and responsibility, right? right. And the foundation of our constitution is this idea that responsibility, we didn't really need to incentivize in a lot of ways. What we needed to incentivize and actively make space for was rights because, you know, the United States was being formed out of a monarchy that was viewed as oppressive and coercive and conforming, right? And so there's, I can't remember, is it James Madison? I think you said that this constitution is, is made for a religious and virtuous people and is wholly inadequate for any other. I think what he's kind of articulating there is less the whole kind of caricature of are we a Christian nation or not conversation and more of like we are standing on the shoulders of having been formed and shaped in a certain way that is distinctly Christian. And the further away from that that we get, the less that responsibility can be assumed and more we are shaped by a view of rights that is at odds with responsibility even. And I even see this as pastors. I know any pastor listening has been faced with the temptation of kind of diluting or dumbing down a church membership process so that people didn't feel like there was any responsibility that they would need to take as being a member that they didn't want to take. Because there is this real weird paradox happening in culture where we don't see those two things as compatible anymore, whereas we would see our rights actually as a gift that is to be stewarded responsibly. And so is that to frame yes. this to, monologue as I, a question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think what you're tapping into there is the only way we see rights as having inherent limits and coexisting with responsibilities mm. is if there is a creator, Right. Mm. So, and I think there was ways that sort of like at the founding of America, the sort of alliance between deists and theists and, you know, good, well-formed, virtuous, you know, atheists or agnostics still held that, you know, we are 
given by our creator certain inalienable rights, right? That's yeah. the language of the declaration. So if you have liberalism, which is by nature, what it means to be free is the removal of constraints, right? Any constraints mm-hmm. to my liberty should be taken away so that I can be as maximally free as possible. So if you have a point of view that says the highest good for human beings is the removal of as many constraints as possible, and you have that untethered to any metaphysic that involves a creator or an embracing of finite limitation, Mm -hmm. then where you end up is that the constraints we end up removing Mm. are the constraints of the created order. And I think that's what you see in transgenderism. I think that's what you see in sort of the kinds of toxic political liberalism on both left and right that we see is sort of like, who cares about decency? Who cares about the common good? Who cares about embodiedness? All of those are constraints that we need to continue to remove because we're after this unfettered self-determination. And it seems to me that only only Christianity or only a worldview that believes that we are limited and finite and that there's a creator above us can put some constraints around liberalism that make it healthy. You know, it's so interesting. I mentioned membership in particular because I recently taught our membership class. And afterward, a younger couple who probably late 20s, I think, came up to me and they were effusive about how much they loved the class and how helpful it was. And I'll never forget what the wife said to me. She said that I'm so hungry for this kind of thing, in part because we are surrounded by limitless options. And everybody tells me that that's freeing but it's actually enslaving. Yeah, I handed her the dry erase mark and said, you should just keep going. Keep talking yes. about that. You're right. So the question is like, well, like, okay, Tim Keller uses this illustration, I think, in The Reason for God. A fish freed from the constraint of its aquatic home is not going to be more free. It is going to suffocate and die. Right. If that is the trajectory that we are on culturally and societally, never mind politically, what in the world has to change to get off of that track? What is the thing that we're missing that has a chance of, of redirecting a good impulse that has metastasized into something that it never would have, should have been? Maybe this is too simple of an answer to your question, but I wonder if the answer is as simple as the goodness of limits, you know, is what needs to be recovered mm. to your fish and water analogy. That Keller is a wonderful caster of metaphors, and that's a good one. I just think mm-hmm. that we, here's what I have noticed in my own preaching. What I have always done is to try to capture how the gospel sets us free. Like I've connected the idea of freedom to the gospel, because of course we see so much language in the New Testament of, you know, mm-hmm. liberation, right? Being liberated from slavery to sin, slavery to self, set free for the good of others. You know, Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So I've tried to speak in the language of freedom. Rarely have I preached a sermon on the goodness of constraints, the goodness mm-hmm. of limits, the goodness of being finite, And I think there have been voices that have done that, but they're sort of a minority report in the church. And probably what we need to recover is the way I describe it to simplify it for pastors is to say, I think we've done a good job preaching the doctrine of redemption. I think we need to do a better job preaching the doctrine of creation, that what we are redeemed to Mm. is the goodness of original creation, which implies limits, boundaries, constraints, That's what it means to be a created being. And I have another sort of anecdote similar to yours, Brad, about the membership class. You know, we've got young men in our church who are, Mm -hmm. you know, 28, 29, 30. We've got a bunch of beautiful single women in our church, but none of the guys will ask them out. And the reason is because there are endless options. You know, dating apps have made it, you know, it's just like you can compare and compare and compare like, well, maybe this girl isn't quite as interesting to me as this other one. And so it's just like you end up with being paralyzed by so much freedom Mm. or by so many options that it limits you from being able to make a simple step of commitment and, you know, boundedness. Mm. And I think that's toxic to Christian maturity. I I think that that's just one small example of ways that I see people in my church that I'm discipling being malformed by the reality of freedom and by the idea that I have limitless choice. And I can, you know, there's, gosh, there's girls all over the world in these apps that I could go on a date with. And so, who would want to, you know, 
commit to one who's actually a real human being that has real limitations and I have to get to know her because, man, that seems like it would, you know, really constrain me to one place and one person and a lie that limitless options make us more free, I think is mm. a lie that we need to undo. And part of the way that we do that is by recapturing the good of constraint. This might be because we just talked about membership before that, but I'm just like, are we still talking about dating? Or are we talking about the bride of Christ? And, and in particular, <laughs> like the particular church, yes. not just this kind of vague universal church that seems to promise scratching that itch of like, oh yes, I'm the church. I'm the church is wherever I am, which is like remarkably self-centered, but like, would that Christians would view the bride of Christ, the way Christ views his bride as that, which is worth committing and giving oneself to for the good of neighbor and glory of God. Yes. The doctrine of finitude might be reinforced a little bit if we were able to experience that by limiting ourselves, by committing to a particular church. Yes. Man, I'm just, ah. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about, we deal with church shopping. I'm in the South Florida area, just North of Miami. And I'm sure you deal with this as well, but folks have a hard time committing. You know, they want the church that meets their needs. You know, you think about whether it's dating or the other day I went to just go get a toothbrush at Target and I was like overwhelmed with possibilities. So I just had to grab one and go. It didn't matter which one it was because I was going to be in there all day looking at my options. But it is interesting because the church is definitely feeling the effects of all this, but the church also has a role to play. I, I couldn't help but thinking of Acts 242 and following where the the people in the church that make up the church limit themselves by devoting themselves to Mm. the constraints, you know, at first glance, constraints that the apostles put forth for them, but those constraints actually cause their flourishing and the growth of a new community. And so it'd be interesting to see if the church can embrace that, that practice of finding flourishing through constraints through actually limiting ourselves and digging in and saying, this is what we're part of. But I'm curious to kind of chase that a little bit. What do you think the role is that the church has to play in this cultural moment? And I know there's the correct biblical answers, but maybe even pushing a little bit further of like, what does it look like to be the people of God? What does it look like to be a city on a hill? What does it look like to have light? How might that shine in this particular moment where no one wants to limit themselves to anything? I think it's going to be a challenge, but I wonder if the counterintuitive move that I feel compelled to make and that I think can help pastors and leaders is, you know, if I preach, hey, you're in a culture that tells you you should have unlimited freedom. Actually, it's good to be constrained and make commitments. That's a hard message to sell because you're asking people to go against <laughs> everything in their world. Yeah. And you have an agenda as a pastor. You're being selfish right. by wanting them of to do that. Of course I want so, you to commit yeah. to my church, right? Yeah. But there's another way, and John, you just hinted at it, which is the language of flourishing. Like I think actually what I want to do is convince people that the message that unlimited choice and unlimited freedom is good for you is actually a lie. It will not lead you to flourishing. I want to sort of do the negative work to counteract that message so that I'm not That's trying good. to say, hey, everybody else tells you you should be free, but I'm telling you you should embrace constraints. And what I want to say instead <laughs> is, did you know that actually unlimited freedom and autonomy will lead you to destruction? And what I think is interesting, what I am seeing that gives me hope is I think that the younger people in my church inherently understand that and see that because mm-hmm. they've experienced it in their own souls. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen all the stats on, Gene Twenge has done a lot of work here on Gen Z, especially young girls, and the, the increasing levels of anxiety surrounding the comparisons you can make on social media. And I just mm-hmm. know like my daughters live that. They're like, oh. hey, I know that actually unlimited choice and freedom and unlimited scrolling and unlimited comparisons and unlimited feeds are not good for me. And so- oh. I think that intuitively our culture, people are more and more sensing the destructive nature of that and are then more open to the idea that actually you're right. Maybe constraint and limitation and embracing finiteness is a path to flourishing, not a path to limitation. 
Mm. Yeah, I keep thinking about, as you're describing this, there's the dynamic of autonomy and choice and freedom. There's also... I don't know if this is a different facet of the same thing or is a parallel thing, but it's this idea that our greatest good and our flourishing happens when we pursue or satisfy our own desires, right? Yes. And there are so many places that that plays out. You know, we had a kind of a book club in our church where we went through Greg Johnson's Still Time to Care. And you know, if you're unfamiliar with the book, the book is about especially the conversion therapy movement, how terrible that was and how much it damaged people by basically trying to force something that was kind of contrary to nature, right? And so many of the people who were attending this book club were like, yes, and amen on that. And then Greg, you know, goes into, and that's why I'm a celibate gay Christian. And you could have heard the record skip because there was confusion that that wasn't contrary to nature, that not meeting or pursuing your desires, how could that even possibly be good? How could that flourish somebody? And Greg goes into two or three chapters that are very explicitly like, here's why this actually brings me joy. And it's not just, this is a sacrifice I have to make. It's actually, it's a sacrifice I get to make that is only possible and makes sense and is satisfying because it's because it's Jesus, right? And so you know, I keep thinking about, man, toward that end, and here's where the question is. It's one thing to kind of explain to people and point out how some of these things aren't satisfying and to say that this is where it is satisfying. But until we have an experience of how constraint is satisfying or how sacrifice is satisfying and flourishing, in some ways in this area and in this kind of cultural moment, maybe more than others, it seems like there is a bigger leap of faith required in that because it's not buttressed around us. Is that right? I think if I could rephrase what I think you're probably saying. Please. <laughs> it's Well, I don't know that it's the same thing you're saying, but the way I would sort of put a point on it is to say it's much easier right now to persuade people who have come to the end of themselves than people who mm. haven't yet. So yeah. people who have chased the unlimited freedom and gotten to the end of that road, like the book of Ecclesiastes and said, mm. yeah, this really isn't satisfying. They're ready for the gospel. The people who are not yet convinced that they've gotten to the end of the road or, you know, the gospel is one option among many. I think it's much harder to persuade that group of people that, yes, it's to your flourishing to embrace constraint and limitation. And so you're right, unless they sort of have an experience of the good of it or an experience of the emptiness of it. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to just, you know, embrace that just on persuasion alone. Yeah. You said elsewhere that you think classical liberalism is on its deathbed and not to put too fine a point on it. That's a pretty fine <laughs> point. It's a pretty fine point. Yeah. Uh, very definite, at least. And with everything that you just said, following it to its ultimate conclusion, it doesn't seem like just as a society that we are terribly eager to get off of this path that we're on. So if we keep going down it, and it's not just on its deathbed, but it actually dies, you know, part of me is like, oh my God, what do we do? I can go apocalyptic on that pretty quick. But also in light of what you just said, that strikes me as, should we be hopeful and praying for that being like a huge evangelistic opportunity? I absolutely think it will be. And I don't know what that mm. end will look like, but I think, you know, whether it's the end of liberalism and it's replaced by something else or whether there's some kind of a renewal at the end mm. of that, either way, it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for the gospel because it's this sort of like death throes of the limits of human mm. autonomy and freedom. You know, And the reason I sort of say that I think it's on its deathbed is just because I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle, right? Once you convince people, and we've convinced people for 300 years, that your greatest flourishing and good is found in unlimited freedom and unlimited lack of constraints. You can't say, hey, we've told you that for 300 years, but actually this one constraint over here is still good for you. <laughs> and so I, I think it's got to run out of gas and we've got to get to the end of it before people will be ready to see and embrace like, oh gosh, some constraints are good and hopefully we'll get there. You know, I don't want to see the end of liberalism as we know it necessarily, but I do think it's hard for me to envision how we put this sort of leash back on the dog and get it back in the yard. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. It does seem like things are running very fast and it's really hard to put the brakes on and reroute. 
we, we talked about generations just a minute ago, but I tend to think about how oftentimes different generations can kind of see the holes in other generations. You know, we have like the okay boomer phrase. And, and I do think that as one of the challenges older generations have is they can sort of put on lenses of nostalgia. And as they look at younger generations can say like, Oh, I, we see the, the faults in that generation based on how things used to be. And some of those critiques are, are right. Some of them are, coming out of other broken people who make up a generation. But then I also think younger people can look at older generations and say, man, we're not going to do it that way because that way didn't work. We see the, the fallout of that. But I'm curious, like there's a reality there. We're all swimming in the same culture mm-hmm. and it's going somewhere like as liberalism is on its, you know, its deathbed, so to speak, bringing the conversation back around to identity, how might we think about identity in 20 years, what could be some ways that identity is thought about in our culture that are different than this current moment? Hmm. I hope, here's an answer. I hope that one of the things we will recover is the necessity of place Mm. for the establishment of identity. Yes. You know, basically what modern culture has done is convince people that rootlessness is good and that you don't have to be tied to any particular place. And that's when I pull out my iPhone, I can be anywhere in the world. I can scroll through what's going on all over the world and feel like, oh, this is kind of where my mind is now. Mm. And I hope that one of the things that happens as things unfold is that we recover the reality that actually being rooted to a place is one of the most foundational things for identity formation. You can think of that place as a nuclear family. You can think of that place as a local church. You can think of that as a region of the country or a piece of property that my family has owned or, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in. But the idea is identity is always connected to location. It's always connected to embodiment and physical presence. And part of the anxiety I think we see in the modern world is a sense of rootlessness and placelessness where none of us are tethered very deeply to a location. Mm-hmm. There's good in that. I like that I can get on a plane and fly to the other side of the world and, you know, do ministry there and have friends there. That's great. But to the extent that I don't experience my identity as bound to a place, I only perpetuate a sense of rootlessness. And so I hope that that's one answer is that we can start with the, you know, the beauty of local churches is that they're local. And <laughs> yeah. the beauty of what we can do with people is to say, look, I tell people all the time, look, you might not live in Omaha, Nebraska forever. Maybe you're in the Air Force. Maybe you're here as a medical resident. You know, you're here for a few years. But while you're here, we want to ground you in a people mm. and in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in a sense of like rootedness in the local church. So that hopefully when they move to South Florida, they get rooted in your church, John, or, you know, they move to Colorado yeah. and they get rooted. I mean, the church has a great opportunity here to recover a sense of place and to speak about that in ways that really compel people to realize the value of it. It's almost like you're saying that institutions are good, actually. <laughs> I am saying that, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. That, uh, to give you full permission to use that otherwise dirty word on this podcast, we are very big fans of institutions. And, you know, it's kind of like, I think I have an aneurysm every time I see on social media, anywhere, you know, like church is not just Sunday morning. And it's like, what? True. Absolutely. You're right. True. That is true. But it's at least that. I mean, yeah, it's not less like, than yeah, that. It's not less than that. If God's commandment to enjoy the greatest gift he gave to man, second short of creation itself, of rest, then if that's a burden for us, then there's something very wrong in the way that we are viewing the world. And the necessity of the church to be human and resting on the seventh day, and that rest being not one of escape, but of worship, I cannot think of something more important or a more vital, essential starting point to what it means to be the church, what it means to follow Jesus. And I don't think it's an accident that, you know, many, I'm sure this is probably the case in Omaha, Nebraska as well. And it may not be entirely causative, but the people who feel lost and isolated are often the least frequently attending church. Yes. Yes. What is interesting how people use the word church now, Brad and I both studied at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. That's where we got to know each other. And 
in that town was the Anheuser-Busch Brewery, and you could go on a free tour of Anheuser-Busch. But I remember our tour guide saying to us, as we were taking a tour through the Anheuser-Busch Brewery, he goes, this is my church. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting, because I've heard that not only just there, but I've also heard that from people who are protesting together. Mm. I've heard people say that. I, I work out at a martial arts dojo. I've heard people say that about that. And it is interesting to think people are wired to look for something that they can be a part of that gives life meaning and forms them and shapes them and connects them to a grand narrative for things, a sense of transcendence. And even if we get rid of institutions, we will find that somewhere else, whether it's a brewery or a dojo. So I think we also have an opportunity, you know, as you mentioned, the evangelistic opportunity for the church organic to really give people an opportunity to explore what it looks like to be part of something that shapes and forms them and gives meaning to life in a way that maybe they haven't experienced before. Yeah. And that pulls them into a web of real relationships with actual human beings. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Man. Well, as we're wrapping up here, Bob, I'm just kind of curious, you know, <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground today. And if you just based on everything that we've been talking about, and like if anybody who's even remotely paying attention, you'd have to live under a rock not to feel like there is a level of instability in the world, in our country, and even in the church. How would you encourage them in this moment, and especially leaders of institutions, whether that be the church or a business or a nonprofit organization, whatever that is, like with all that swirling around, I think there are a lot of people who are asking just like, where do I even start? Like, how do I not be overwhelmed by this? And so how would you encourage us as we end? Man, uh, that's a great question. And I guess I would say a few things. One is don't be reactive. Mm. You know, the Church of Jesus Christ is going to endure. And so the worst thing we can do is fret and worry and become reactive like the rest of the world around us. I think we need to have a very strong, peaceful presence and a sense that like, hey, whatever happens in our culture, whatever happens in politics, whatever happens in the world, Jesus is on the throne and he's guiding all of history in the direction he wants to. And so we don't need to be alarmed and worried. So I sort of want to just help people with a grounded confidence in the gospel, mm. right? The good news we believe really is good news. So don't be reactive. But the second thing is I want to tell people, um, you know, we are in cultured beings. And so, yeah, if it feels like your kid's school is falling apart and your neighborhood is kind of falling apart and your city's in turmoil and you're not sure about the future of the country. Okay. That's real. <laughs> like, don't, you don't need to, you don't need to pretend those things don't actually exist. I think Christians sometimes can hover above all that and be like, well, Jesus is on the throne. Yeah, he is. And these things still affect our lives, you mm -hmm. know? And so it's okay to live in the both end of, I don't want to be reactive, but I do want to embrace it. Like I do mm -hmm. live at a certain moment in history and a certain point in culture. And so avoid reactivity, embrace reality. And I want to encourage people, especially leaders to have a sense of imagination and anticipation of what does the Lord want from us in mm -hmm. this moment? I am convinced, and I'm probably not the only person who has said this, but I'm convinced that what Augustine was doing when he wrote The City of God at the fall of the Roman Empire, that's kind of the kind of moment that we're in in our culture where it's things are fraying. The empire, quote unquote, of America is kind of fragmented. Maybe it's on its deathbed. Who knows? But we have a positive role, a positive work to do in casting a compelling vision for why the city of God is a better place to dwell than the city of man. Mm. And so I think to the extent that we can continue to shape a kingdom vision and to call people into what it means to belong to Christ, no matter what's going on in the world around us, that's anchoring and satisfying despite all of the turmoil and chaos that we feel in the broader culture. So I want us to be people who are positive and hopeful and creative when it comes to asking the question. And I like the conversations you guys are trying to push forward here because it does feel to me like we need to be talking yeah. more about liberalism. We need to be talking more about the limits of autonomy and freedom. We need to be talking more about the baseline assumptions of Western culture that we need to sort of critique. That's the right work for us to be mm. doing in addition to just preaching the scriptures and making disciples. Man, amen to that. That's so good. I love that. I love that. Bob, thank you for joining us today. You've given us a lot to think about answered some great questions with some great answers and we really appreciate your time and hope to have you back again. 
Hey, I'm thankful for the opportunity. It's great to chat with you guys and I hope it's helpful to listeners as they follow along. Awesome. Thanks, man. I know, John, we have never started one of these reflection points and been like, that kind of sucked. Like, that's not a, it's, we haven't had, to, we haven't had to either. So that, that helps. But that was really, I think I especially appreciated how, like the breadth of, of what Bob was able to cover and speak to, because I think it's a really helpful framing and kind of sets a tone and a foundation to build on and deepen as we go. But I'm curious, what is your so what? Yeah. Well, let me add to your first comment. I think one of the reasons that it doesn't suck is not necessarily because we're good hosts, but we are good at picking good people to interview. And so they make <laughs> it really good. So yeah. that's our skill. Can you imagine it? having to answer the question that we asked at the end of like, so wh- oh how gosh. do you encourage people who think the world is falling apart? Like, yeah, yeah. and yeah. he actually had an answer. That was great. <laughs> right. I know. I know. So yeah. I loved what he said about place, the necessity of place for the establishment of identity. And I was trying to think about what that's like in South Florida. It's interesting in South Florida, we're a tri-county area with three counties, Palm Beach County, which is West Palm Beach, go a little bit further south, you have Broward, which is Fort Lauderdale, and then a little further south, Dade, which is Miami. And it's very interesting how place works down here and the identity around place. Hmm. So Dade County is the area code, the first area code there was 305. So people call it the 305. Broward was 954, so they call it the 954. And it's interesting because, like, I'll say, even our guests ask, like, where are you? I'll say just north of Miami. But even my friends who are Miami (laughs) pastors would have a problem with me saying that. They'd be like, dude, you're not from Miami. And I'm like, I know. I didn't say I was from Miami. I said I'm (laughs) north of Miami. And they're like, you're from Broward. You're not from Miami. I'm like, okay. Where's Broward County? Where is it? How would you describe it? Is it north of yeah, Miami? It's just Thank north, you. It's just north of Miami, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is interesting, I thinking about even how people function around place down here. If you have these two categories of consuming from a place versus mm. investing in a place, I think we're a much more consumer culture when it comes to place than other cities I've lived in, which has made it hard. When we started planting here, we much more wanted to be a parish-style ministry, which is what the church plants I've been part of in the past. It was not about a big city. It was about a specific place within a city and rooting there. But that's been challenging in South Florida for a lot of reasons. One, I think the rise of social media made people feel disconnected from the places they live because they were so Mm. connected to other places. And then I think also in our South Florida culture, it's not uncommon for people to spend two plus hours in their car a day commuting to where they work. And so the idea of being rooted somewhere, it's just different down here. But we've talked about this in the past. We've talked about the flattening of context where because of our connection through social media and the internet, it feels like you're everywhere at once and nowhere at the same time. Yeah. And so when issues come up, when news comes up, you sort of feel connected to it even if there's nothing you can do about it. And we lose the fact that we have a specific place that we live that has specific blessings and specific problems. And I was thinking about that. I was talking to a pastor yesterday who's on another part of the country, and we were talking about some of the racial dynamics in his city versus my city. And I was like, I would have never even thought that the problems you're facing in your city exist. Like I wouldn't even know how to to imagine that. Yeah. And then I explained to him how the layout works in South Florida. And he basically said the same thing. So it's just interesting how, you know, we know exactly what's happening at this moment, the moment recording what's going on in Israel and Gaza and things like that. We know all about that. But Hmm. do we know what's happening locally? And there's a real challenge there because what Bob Thune is suggesting is by knowing more globally than we do locally, we're not really rooted in a place. And that has something to do with identity formation or identity malformation. 
I'm still trying to think that through, but I remember no. what, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to validate. I think you're dead on. You know, when we both lived in St. Louis, I was especially a fan of urban planning and design. And mm-hmm. it's surprising to find out that, you know, a street grid that St. Louis used to be made up of with good intentions in many parts of the city, they closed off certain entrances into that street grid in order to make some roads travel faster on it. And also because they thought that, well, if there are fewer people driving through a neighborhood, then that would lower crime. Well, when you create cul-de-sacs where before there were thoroughfares, what you actually do is reduce the number of eyes on a city block, and that actually increases crime. And so are, there yeah. are all these like kind of unintended consequences. Yeah. And I don't think we talk about how the place that we live in shapes our sense of self as well. And not just through the social relationships and the culture of a place, but also in the very way that the place is structured, incentivizes going to some locations and makes it harder to go to other locations. And that all adds up to something. It's a geographic and systemic liturgy. Yeah. That shapes us. Yeah. And it is interesting because we are shaped so much by the narratives, the ideology, the, even just the news stories that we see when we open up our phone or get online, we might miss some of the fascinating details about our own local neighborhood that would really shape us. I remember back to season one when we talked to Tara Isabella Burton and we were asking her some question, I can't remember specifically, but about like where she sees hope for the future in this liminal age. And she said something like in small local communities, Mm. that's where the hope is. And I was like, wow, that is, that's, that's kind of what Bob Thune is saying as well. The weird thing I think though, is that there's this sort of mirage that happens that when we broaden the scope of our connection and our consuming it actually feels like we're flourishing for some reason. It feels hmm. like we're connected more, and we are, we're connected more broadly. But could it also be lessening our sense of identity, even our sense of flourishing, because we're connected to everything rather than being connected to one thing well? Oh, man. And what if the goodness of, to pull this back into his limits, what if the goodness of limits and like binding ourselves to a place and saying, I'm here and I'm going to form my identity in this local geographical place. That means I'm not there. I'm here. That means mm. I don't have to deal with their problems. I got to deal with my problems. I wonder what that would do in terms of shaping identity. Oh man, of course, this isn't anybody's fault. This is just kind of human nature where we can feel like we are making a difference and not have to be vulnerable or exercise responsibility beyond mm-hmm. what we might be able to type on a keyboard or put into our phone. Of course, we will we will inflate that avenue of responsibility as being more important than it is and deflate places in our lives where vulnerability and sacrifice is required to take responsibility. And over time, that experience does shape our sense of self and our meaning-making efforts as image bearers. Like, so, God, that's a fascinating connection, man. Yeah. Well, I just think, I mean, when we were in St. Louis, we had one of my closest friends lived two blocks away. Another guy I was close to live. Actually, there was like four guys who lived within several blocks of each other. And we would do these neighborhood prayer walks. And like, I remember doing them in January. It was bitter cold out, but like Mm -hmm. we would meet people and we would have these experiences together. And like we were in Tower Grove East and Mm -hmm. Tower Grove East is like a, a square with a triangle at the bottom. And that triangle at the bottom was called the wedge. And we lived in the wedge and we were like proud of that. We were wedge guys, you know? And like we lived in a neighborhood that had a lot of problems, that had a lot of crime, it had a lot of beautiful things as well. But like the fact that we were doing that together, we were walking through the neighborhood together, we were praying, we were meeting people. Like there was something about that that was shaping Mm. and forming for us as men walking together. So it's interesting. I'm not sure we're getting more of that in our culture. I think we're getting less of that due to our connectivity to everywhere. Hmm. What about you, Brad? What are you walking away with? What's your so what? You know, it's funny. I think something that you said had just like hit me between the eyes. 
And when you were sharing that illustration of the tour guide from Anheuser-Busch saying, this is my church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just, man, what a statement of a person's kind of like primary sense-making community, right? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be religious. There's a sense that somebody is saying with that statement that these are my people and this is the vehicle or the involvement, attachment, however you want to frame that, that gives me purpose and meaning, right? And that, it's so fascinating to me. I kind of wonder if anybody would still use that language and say that about anything right now, because in a lot of ways, I think our definition of like, what is church has actually become so diluted in all the ways that you're talking about divorced from place. It's become this almost kind of Gnostic thing that's divorced from, or just not needing to be attached to a physical geographic, actual community people and place. Right. And I think what's fascinating about that to keep with your Anheuser-Busch metaphor. I lived also very close to the brewery and would go running around Lafayette Park in the Lafayette Square neighborhood because that was almost exactly a one mile circuit. And I mean, I do 10, not really just like one or two. Sure, it, sure you do. Yeah. Sure you do. But, but I remember like, you know, often when I was running, the brewery was making beer and the smell of hops and wort in the air was often so thick, my body felt so confused because it's like, are we running or are we drinking beer? Because those two things are not (laughs) compatible, right? Those can't happen at the same time. And it was like this almost kind of palpable confusion physiologically. I I think there's something about the individualism in the air that makes a good and sometimes hard but healthy thing like running or going to church feel completely incompatible as if we can't do those two things at the same time. And so I say that because I kind of wonder if like maybe one of the reasons why people fear or hesitate to commit to a local church and want to kind of stay kind of tangentially attached is because there's this intuitive, if buried awareness that to devote yourself to the church, like we're talking about Allah acts Two, would actually require them to let go of other sense making vehicles that they have relied on for understanding the world around them, for understanding who they are, their sense of self and identity for a very long time, right? Hmm. And like in Luke 14, Jesus is teaching and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I think as pastors, right, we want to kind of dilute that down. It's like, well, he's making a rhetorical point by saying you have to hate. And it actually means just like make Jesus the higher priority. And I think he might actually be talking about something on a level of identity, not just our affect, our feelings Mm -hmm. about those people. I think what he's describing here is to be a disciple is to have a priority of sense making and identity shaping according to Jesus's teachings and Jesus's community, the apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Right. And I think we know that even if it's not conscious or intentional, I think there is an awareness of man, for me to become a member of a church actually will require me to die to some things. I actually still really love. And Jesus is saying, you actually have to hate them Hmm. even if they're good. Yeah. And so if that's the case, man, when Bob was talking about having this kind of imagination, a positive vision of what God might do in your place, in your institution or in your church. And I think he even said that like, we're in this kind of city of God moment. I keep thinking about what kind of a difference would it make? Let's actually imagine John, for those who are struggling to make that leap of faith like Jesus is talking about, to make our primary sense-making and identity-shaping vehicle and community, the church. Imagine how powerful of a witness that would be for all of our unanchored, tossed to and fro, friends, families, neighbors, if literally just their experience of you was shaped and informed by the fruit of that devoting yourself, right? Yeah, flesh it out more for me. How many times have you heard, John, like, you're like, I don't know how to talk to my neighbors about Jesus. Like, I don't know. How do I explain the gospel? Don't. Don't worry about it. 
describe your experience of having devoted yourself to a gospel community, to the institution of the church, Hmm. because the flourishing that will result from that is the potent witness our neighbors actually are looking for and longing for. We're trying to do it with information, what we can only do through an experience of the truth of the gospel as it flourishes us in community and not as mere individuals. Right. Right. Even as you're saying that, I'm thinking when we host the church over at our house, it's a lot of work. We love doing it. We love cooking and having people in our home, but I never, I was more worried about like my church members parking on my neighbor's lawn and like ruining their lawn. But I also think there's something there where they, you know, they're seeing us be shaped by friendships through Jesus, but there's also a sense where it might be shaping them to see us in our backyard, you know, hanging out together and just being the Christian community. Dude, that's Um, so funny. You mentioned that because I recently had kind of like a men's hanging out at my house in our backyard over beer. And we had like 25 guys come to it. And I got a text from one of my neighbors saying like, Hey, a lot of people are knocking on our door. We're trying to send them our way. So hopefully they don't get lost. Yeah. I was like, thank you so much. (laughs) Like, You're an awesome neighbor. And then they texted me later and they were like, um, this is a lot of people like, why do they want to do this again? Like they seem really nice and happy. And was that fun? Could I come? I'm like, yes, you absolutely can come. And (laughs) it's like right there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, man. And I think even just, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just picturing the difference between Brad having uh, people over at his house and the neighbors seeing verse, Brad running through the streets of St. Louis, smelling the hops, continually throwing his finger in the air and going, bartender, or have another. <laughs> hey, you know, there is a common denominator here, and that is beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. And I think lastly, if I'm trying to, let me just admit, right, like part of why I asked that last question of Bob is because it is so hard not to feel that way ourselves, right? Like as pastors, man, it can feel like we're spinning our wheels sometimes. It's so Mm. sad trying to describe what only an experience can do, Hmm. but experience can't happen without the just kind of jumping in with both feet. Ah, you know, it's an overused metaphor, but all you can do is lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I get that. But I think that's why that imagination point he made was actually so encouraging and helpful because when I'm thinking about like, okay, this is worth it, right? And it is worth it. But imagine the slow build, the generational impact of a church that didn't, you know, water down commitment or membership or discipleship in order to try and keep people that maybe sacrificed a breadth of growth for the sake of depth of growth, or even, even a church, maybe it's a larger church, but like, can you imagine how a nucleus within a more culturally Christian church or maybe a more shallow church or whatever, imagine a nucleus of devoted people drawing people closer to the living water, not because they're telling them where it is, but because their thirst is satisfied by it. And the change that that bears in their lives is evident. And I just, I mean, some of this is just duh, right? But I think it's easy to lose, especially when we have, we have reduced the church as a means to an end and we hmm. don't view the church institutionally and we ourselves have been unanchored from place in the way that you're talking about. And I think that it's just this kind of like domino effect that illustrates, man, you know what? I know that actually. I need that imagination too. I have been distracted and hadn't taken my eyes off the ball as a result of the same pressures our people are dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, I got tons of compassion for that reason, if nothing else. Yeah. That's always good to remember, too. I think that the technology, the ability to move around, those things. Well, let me say this. Being connected through technology is not a bad supplement, but it's not a great primary resource. Mm. Yeah. And being able to be in the same room with people, you know, and 
listen to people's problems, pray for each other, you know, try and talk and hear someone else cough. And you're like, how many times are going to, you know, that's the normal stuff of Christian community. Yeah. I think shapes and forms us and goes, I'm part of this people in this place. And I think that's hugely important for us to be able to grow as Christians. Man. Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to see, gosh, how we plumb the depths from here. Cause I think there's a lot more to be said as we just skirted over the surface of a lot of this stuff. So yeah. Yeah. More to come. Here we go. We're season three. Let's do it. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.